Our readings from 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are, not David's, who are David's enemies. That is what they say. The blind and lame will not enter the place. David then took up residence in the fortress and called in the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Ephlet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David's men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord and answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Well done, Rachel. 
He likes to be given a reading full of names. You did really well. They tripped off the tongue, almost as if you'd rehearsed. That was awesome. Good. Well, good morning. <clears throat> My name's Mike. I'm the uh, minister of the church here. And, uh, well, as you can see, we're working our way uh, through the book of 2 Samuel. We've done 1 Samuel. We're keeping the story going. We want to see what happens to David. We're coming to the pinnacle of David's reign. <clears throat> uh, a few more good chapters, and then he turns a sad corner. But if you know your Bible, you'll know that's coming. Let me pray as we begin. Uh, as we've prayed already, as uh, Heather led us in prayer, you, you, we believe this is your word. This is our confession. And we believe that in the power of your spirit, you will not just speak to us, but transform us. Give us life and health and equip us for doing good through your word. Do that this morning, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I, I want to begin, not in the pages of 2 Samuel, just for a moment, but, but in the news, much important stuff in the news. Good to have prayed about some of that this morning. One a little item that you may well have missed, tucked away, a little kind of good news story, I guess you might call it, is uh, the release of a new video game. Was that me? That worked. Great. Hogwarts Legacy, the next, or really the first big game uh, for, in the Harry Potter series. <clears throat> now, I, it's worth reflecting on just for a, a moment. Not so much the uh, controversy that J.K. Rowling creates with her views and that necessarily circles as a game based on that book series is launched, although that is interesting. We should come back to that at another time. I guess for this morning, though, something slightly different, and that is to, to puzzle over this. That <clears throat> it's nearly 30 years since she published the first book in that Harry Potter series. Why is it so enduring? Why are kids still watching the film, still reading the books, even now still playing new video games based on a, on a series that's, well, you might say, a little dated now? Well, if you pause and think, actually, the, if we call this the fantasy genre of things, <clears throat> that's been hugely popular, very influential, I think, in pop culture over the last... 50 years, whether it's Harry Potter or, oh, there we go, there's Harry Potter, uh, A Game of Thrones, you may have heard of that, hugely popular series shown on Sky, and then probably the grandfather of them all, The Lord of the Rings. But why do these books, why these films, why video games based on these things, why do they remain so popular in Western culture? Well, we could say it's because they're brilliant adventure stories, and that's certainly true, stories of, uh, of courage and sacrifice. There's a timeless attractiveness to stories like that, isn't there? Which parent doesn't love to read stories like that to their children? Or, or perhaps it's the, the firm friendships and the traveling companions that are formed in each of these series. That, that must speak to us, I think, in a well, we often say our world is fractured and more and more individualistic. That, that firm friendship group is, is appealing. That remains. But perhaps, and, and I guess it's this element that I want us to reflect on this morning, perhaps it's something to do with, uh, with the hopes and the dreams of the characters. Something to do with the world 
that they hope for, a world that they fight for. In each of these series, presented in various ways, is a hope of a a better world, isn't there? And by a better world, what I mean really is a better society. People or creatures living in harmony. And, And interestingly, in none of them, I think I'm right in saying, though you might be a scholar of Lord of the Rings and want to argue with me, but I think I'm right in saying, in none of them is the hope a representative parliamentary democracy. That's not what they're out to get, is it? In the West, we tend to look down on countries, countries ruled by a, by a sole monarch. But actually, in our literature, in our film, in t- on TV, in these fancy series, actually we find, I think, a longing for, for a king who will reign with justice and courage, a king who will gather and protect his people and rule in peace over the enemies of his people. No British politician is going to stand up and argue for that kind of governance, but our art and culture suggests that there's perhaps a recognition deep within us that well, we need a perfect king if we want to live in a perfect world. Now, I'm not suggesting that that these series map easily onto the Christian faith, although I think there are elements there, but again, that's for another time. But, But if we're students of the Bible, if we read from the beginning and followed the promises for a coming Messiah right from the book of Genesis onwards, then then perhaps we might want to argue there's an appeal in series like this because God has built into all of us a longing for his king to establish his perfect kingdom where there will be justice and we will live at peace eternally. And the Old Testament kings, we know this as we've read through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, the Old Testament kings are just glimpses of what might be when that final king, that when God himself turns up to rule his people. Such a a strong thread of hope through the Old Testament, especially in the books of uh, woman to Samuel that look if you've been reading and if we were invested in this not just picking it up again on a Sunday morning having not thought about it at all in the last week but if we were reading invested and interested in the characters can you see chapter uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 1 we'd read that with a tear on our, on our cheeks wouldn't we perhaps even a jig in, in our feet all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said we are your own flesh and blood Well, last, we've been waiting for this moment for so long. Not just through one Samuel, but right from the beginning of the the book of, well, at least from Genesis 3 onwards, and the fall of man. And then we read verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, And they anointed David king over Israel. Yes, we're supposed to say as we read this. That's it. This is what we've been waiting for. It's not the fullness of all that there is to come, but this is a big stepping stone. Uh, If you read Ypres carefully, you do, don't you? It takes me a long time to write it, you better do. (laughs) You perhaps have noticed that that I've called uh, today part one and next week 
of, of uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter 6, part 2. And, and it's really because these chapters, two chapters, five and six, could really be one chapter, but it's too much to look at in just one week. They could be one chapter in the sense that, to put together, they display these uh, three beautiful facets of, of God's kingdom, a place to reign, a reign of peace, and then the presence of God. We'll, we'll think about the presence of God next week. If you're with us, we'll go through chapter 6 uh, 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 slowly and see what that's like. But for this morning, we're just going to concentrate on two of those elements of this beautiful kingdom. Uh, and you'll see how it flows. There we go. A place to reign then. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 16. Well, look, can you see, uh, I'm sure you noticed it, it's such a great story as Rachel read it to us, that we start with what seems like an insurmountable problem. David wants Jerusalem to become his capital. Lots of good reasons for that. We can think about that later. But the important thing for now is that the, the residents of the city of Jerusalem, the Jebusites, it's a tribe of Canaan, they, they seem rather confident that their city can't be toppled. In fact, they've been so dug into this city, actually since the days of the judges and before, uh, they've been there and the tribes of Israel have been unable to remove them from this place. It's quite impressive at first glance. Uh, and then the Jebusites go and spoil this image as they, as they open their mouths. And in an age of equal opportunities, it's almost embarrassing to read their boast, verse 6, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. That's not very politically correct, is it? If we had a regiment solely for disabled soldiers, that would be enough to keep David's army at bay, they say. That's how good our armaments, our defences are. That's their boast. But they're wrong, aren't they? The walls of the city can't be scaled, but... But David sees a vulnerability in their water system. We, we can get to their blind and lame defenders through the pipes, says David, verse 8. I, 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 I take it, well, what he means is he, he knows the hidden source of their water that they're piping into the city and by cutting it off, the city will fall by thirst within days. And so, Jerusalem... Uh, was rid of the Canaanite tribe which had kept the promises of God unfulfilled for so long now at last it becomes the base with which the people of God had, for which the people of God had always hoped uh, verse 9 David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David he built up the area around it from the terraces inwards and he became more and more powerful why? now this is important isn't it? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. So critical that we read that bit to see how different David is in his security from those he's taken over from, from the Jebusites. If you uh, grew up in the era of the King James Bible, there's still a few of us, not me, but still a few of you left. (laughs) It doesn't say the Lord Almighty. What, What does it say? Can you remember? How does the King James, in that translation, they translate that, that Hebrew phrase? Not the Lord Almighty, but the Lord of hosts. That's the phrase you'd have seen again and again in the Old Testament. 
Lord of Hosts, it's a good translation actually. It's a very vivid image. It's the title given to God which pictures the Lord himself at the head of the armies of heaven in all his power and splendor. Lord Almighty, that's pretty good. Not quite as good, I think, as Lord of Hosts. And it's this Lord God, verse 10, it's this Lord God who is with David and for David. And and therefore all of of the defensive terraces, verse 9, that we've read about, they're just an outward display of a spiritual safety that only God himself can bring. Well, uh, from that little kind of vignette, we whiz forward in history to a later period, but one place here, because it's continuing the theme, a palace is built for David. It's a a gift from uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, presumably seeking to secure good favor with the king. And so we see that David is God's king in the place that God has set apart for him. Here is the place at last from which the king that God himself has appointed and anointed will reign over the people. Verse 12, Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and has exalted his kingdom. Last little phrase, really important again, for the sake of his people Israel. Now look, the the wording there is key, isn't it? That the, the palace wasn't to David, it mustn't be to us as we read back and look into history, it wasn't a symbol of David's wealth and, and grandeur. Now for David at least, it, it showed, verse 12, well it showed that the Lord had been the one working, it was the Lord who had established him, the position he was in was not of his own making, and secondly from verse 12, his position was not for his own benefit, but for the good of, for the sake of, the people of God, the people of Israel. He was king, the the greatest king, the pinnacle of kings, the greatest king that Israel would know in the Old Testament. But can you see verse 12, there's a sense in which he is a servant king, ruling not for his own benefit, but for the good of the people. Well, there's a lesson in leadership that we could uh, reflect on for the rest of the sermon. There's a model for what leadership in the church and the world ought to be, but that won't have to be saved for another time. It, I, I guess more importantly, it's hard, well, it's not hard, uh, excuse me, again, to see in the story of David how, how we're shown again and again the kind of king the Lord Jesus Christ is. What, what David could only nudge us towards we see finally and fully embodied in the, in the coming of Christ in the New Testament age, don't we? For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It, we go from the heights of the kingship, the rule, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, back to chapter 5, and we hit verse 13, uh, and it's almost heartbreaking to read verses 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 I guess on the positive side and this chapter does seem to be a positive chapter about David on the positive side we're seeing David becoming more established his family growing that's the flow of the text the Lord blessed David 
and his family multiplied in number. That's the kind of phrase that might summarize something like that. And yet, it makes uncomfortable reading, doesn't it? After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. More sons and daughters were born to him through them. Oh, brother, that's not good, is it? You don't have to be a student of scripture to know this can't possibly end well. And if you are a student of scripture, if you've read the Old Testament, you're even more unnerved because the words of Moses resonate in your head, don't they? Before the people had even come into the land of Canaan, way back in the days of Moses, Moses had said, God will give you a king, but he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Deuteronomy 17. If we needed a, a reminder that David is not the Messiah, just a signpost on the way, well, there it is for us in chapter 5. But just mark that concern for now. We'll come back to that very topic, David and his uselessness with regard to women, his foolishness. We, we will have to confront that later in the book of 2 Samuel. For, for now, let's move on to the second part of the chapter And from verse 17 onwards, you see a reign of peace. If the first beautiful facet of of God's kingdom is to see God's servant king enthroned and ruling his people, the second facet now uh, is this peace that comes as David turns to address the Philistines. And again, if you're with us week by week, you'll remember we've seen the Philistines throughout these books, always the enemies of God's people. Do you remember even David himself first came to prominence as he stood and faced the great Philistine Goliath and beat him in battle? Well, what David started way back then, do you see, comes to fruition now. At verse 17, <clears throat> the Philistines come in full force for David. At verse 18, they spread their armies along the valley of Rephaim and well, look, it would be easy at this point to, to rush on and to keep reading without thinking too much. But let's remind ourselves that David is secure in his capital, just like the Jebusites were. And remember how uh, militarily confident the Jebusites were in Jerusalem. Only the blind and lame troops were needed to defend, so impregnable their, their, their defenses. And so we come to verse 19. And we could read something like this. Uh, 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 Forget battling with the Philistines, David said. Let's stay secure in Jerusalem. Let's do the Netflix and chill option. Or or perhaps we could read verse 19, the exact opposite. How dare they approach me when the Lord of hosts is with me? I'm going to go and whoop them into next week. Now, we've read through 1 and 2, Samuel. We're quite used to leaders being negligent or overly aggressive and ridiculously self-confident. And so, verse 19 is really, really a balm for the soul, isn't it? Isn't it beautiful? David, with humility and devotion, a recognition that all he has is given him by the hand of God. He kneels and he prays. And he seeks direction from the one who knows all things and whose purposes will never be thwarted. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Verse 19, will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. And 
well, wonderfully, in, in humble obedience, David does as he is told. And we, we know the outcome without even glancing down. Verse 20, there he defeated them. And David gives public recognition that the victory is not his, but it is the Lord's. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. It's a wonderful moment in establishing peace. But the lessons haven't been learned by the Philistines properly yet. And so, uh, verse 22, they come back for a second go, back to the same valley, back to attack David and his army. And again, so that we can see this is an established pattern flowing from a, an established character. It wasn't a fluke the first time. David prays again. And this time, interestingly, the Lord's answer is the opposite. Not go forward, but the Lord says, do not go forward. Instead, go round. And again, David responds with humble obedience. He circles his troops behind the Philistines, a change of tactic they weren't expecting. And as the Lord directed him when he heard the sound of marching in the trees, he knows that the Lord is at work, working for his people. The Lord of hosts, marching out with his angelic army in the heavenly realms. And only then on earth, David attacks uh, and verse 25, so David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gaza. All those chapters and chapters of battles with the Philistines, how many have we read over the last 18 months? And then we come to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, bang, and it all seems so easy, doesn't it? No mention of the size of David's army, no, no mention of the generals coordinating the troops, no, no mention of his divisions of infantry and cavalry, no mention of any weaponry or armour, none of that, because none of that matters at this point, does it? That's not the point of the story. This is the point of the story, verse 20. As the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. And who can stand against the Lord and his anointed? Not the Philistines. Two things I, I think come to the fore in this little section of, uh, of 2 Samuel 5. First about the king, second about his kingdom. Firstly, and I've tried to repeat it, so forgive me if it's obvious already, but David models utter humble dependence on the Lord his God, doesn't he? And that's so important, that's so beautiful. That was the kind of king Israel always needed. Not, not one who was confident in his own strength or his own intelligence or his own resources. One whose confidence rested solely on the Lord God of hosts. In that, you can see David serves as a wonderful signpost, pointing us forward to the one who would embody true humility and steadfast faith in the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ the Son. And secondly, as David reigns, just for a moment, all opposition 
melts away and is defeated. The, the enemies of God cannot stand before God's king and his kingdom. And of course, again, isn't that, isn't that our, our only hope? That's our, our certain hope and confidence that King Jesus will, will rule over his kingdom with such security that he will hold us despite attack and opposition right to the very end of the age. In, in, in popular culture, in literature and TV and films and video games, stories seem to enjoy in our culture that tell us about a kind of society we long for. Lord of Rings, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter. We long for a wise and a humble ruler who will rule with justice and who will protect the people from their enemies and bring peace. That's certainly where the Bible reads us as we read from the beginning, beginning onwards. We long for that perfect king who will come and gather God's people and bless them and rule them and give them peace and victory. And do you see, 2 Samuel chapter 5, it transports us, even as we read it, it transports us to the New Testament like a time machine, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his answering his enemies and his reign over sickness and demonic activity and the frustrations of the world and finally his death and ascension to heaven. And it transports us forward to that final day when he will come back. And he will fully and finally defeat all the enemies of his people. And at that day, on that day, bring us home. And so we pray in accordance with Jesus' teaching in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come now in heaven as it is on earth, Lord. And we pray too as we... Once see in the book of Revelation, if you're able to come to our evening series as well, we pray that prayer we find at the end of the book. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray. Gracious God, you have pointed again and again to the kind of world that you will bring on the day when Christ's reign is full and final and consummated. Uh, foster within us a hunger for that final day and give us the grace to live now with a confidence that all your plans and purposes will come to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.